You're listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and knowledge of God's people. My name is Tyler Jones. I'm your host. Thanks for listening in, whoever you may be and wherever you may be. May the Lord bless this podcast to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth. On the podcast today is Jason Rowland. He's the senior pastor and one of the elders of Believer's Baptist Church. And another elder, Philip Castleton. It's just us three. And Philip um, pulled a good one on me this morning. Uh, Sent me a... a, So I've been leading worship lately um, here at the church so far this year in 2020, most of the time. And Philip's helped as well. And um, he's a big help even when I'm leading uh, as just a backup singer and that kind of thing. And so he thought he would suggest um, a song to me this morning, and it was uh, quite the doozy. My wife and I were looking at each other in disbelief, just like, <laughs> "Is this this can't be real, right? And apparently we didn't get far enough into the song to figure out that it was for sure a, uh, a hoax. But uh, Yeah, unfortunately the song itself wasn't a hoax. Um, <laughs> it is actually some people that have, that their theology... Um, it's an aberrant theology, and and it it lends itself to being hateful to people who don't think like themselves. <clears throat> but they have produced a song, actually singing it in church, and um, it's less than biblical, but is also less than kind. But um, but it did provide a good laugh. Oh yeah, and I sent it to <laughs> I sent it with no commentary uh, <laughs> to Tyler, and he wasn't sure. Yeah. What to make of it this morning? Because we don't necessarily listen to the same music all the time. So <laughs> I was like, okay, this is maybe something. And then I heard the first like kind of chorus come in. And I was like, this is weird right here. And then apparently it just got weirder throughout the song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I won't be sharing the, the title. But, yeah. but uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything serious. And if you ever catch me enjoying stuff like that for real, um, we probably need to have a talk. <laughs> Needs to be some rebuking. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we're going to get to the question here. Um, the question is, does God change his mind? And Jason, uh, we're going to go to you about this first. Well, obviously, we're talking about a huge question that's been debated and thought about all through biblical history, and we know that it's a question in which people fall on both sides of an answer here, and we're talking about the incomprehensible. We're talking about the one who can't be described. We're talking about the one who is beyond human language. So keep that in mind, and that lays the foundation. So when we talk about does God change his mind, there are really a couple of primary texts that people will use to argue, yes, he does change his mind. One of those is Matthew, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 22. Let me just read 22 through 26. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
And because of time, we'll not read the whole conversation, but Abraham continued his pleading, his interceding, if you will, for the people of Sodom. And it seemed that God relented or changed his mind about what he had purposed to do concerning the destruction of the city based on the the interceding of Abraham. And so that would be one of the texts that the people who would argue for God changing his mind would use to say, here is evidence that God changes his mind because he listened to Abraham and he continued to decrease the number of righteous people in the city to spare the city. But let me go to a second text. This is in Exodus chapter 32 and reading in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the sea and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So again, that would be a second text. The context is the worship of the golden calf. And now God has said he is going to bring disaster upon his own people. Moses again is interceding. And it seems, and it explicitly says, God relented what he had spoken concerning the disaster that he had brought on his people. So those are just two texts. We can go to other texts. For example, Jonah's situation. And most people are familiar with Jonah. And he goes to Nineveh and preaches. And the city repented. And so God did not destroy the city based on their repentance. And again, that would be an evidence for God changing his mind. But... What we want to be able to think about in the podcast, and I think our argument is that God does not change his mind. And now, these narrative texts that I've read, Philip, what are a couple of reasons why we can go to those texts and we can say God doesn't change his mind? We're going to bring in some other evidences, some very clear evidences in just a minute. But what just of those two narrative texts? Well... You know, the, the assumption, theological assumption or assertion that's made is that God is immutable, that God does not change. And, and so the, the rub comes when you see texts like this, that it looks like God does change, or at least it changes mind in that sense. <clears throat> so that's where the rub comes in. The, um, but, but with all of these texts, the, the truth of, of Scripture is, and we need to let Scripture, you know, uh, be the authority here, also be how we, um, we don't need our theology to, to to dictate what Scripture means. We need to let Scripture speak for itself. Not only that, I think we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, yes. which we'll do and demonstrate in a few minutes. Right, and we're going to look at some some didactic texts versus narrative texts. Um, Can you but, explain those? Those well, are big words. A teaching, uh, texts that are meant to make th- statements, <laughs> theological statements about God. Mm-hmm. Um 
there are texts that that make statements like God is like this. Period. That's versus didactic. Didactic mm-hmm. versus narrative, where in the context of of a story, God is portrayed in a certain way um, for a, for a reason. And I would argue that in the context of all of these things, there's language called phenomenological language or anthropomorphic language where, um, and and for a good example of this is when Moses um, brought down the Ten Commandments, you know, they were written on stone and they were written by the finger of God. But God is spirit and doesn't have a finger. What do we do with that? So it's a humanizing text. Anthropomorphism is humanizing something that is man yes and what what we're doing is we're using language that makes sense to man Mm -hmm. so um, to put it in a category that man can make sense of Um, the bible does this in a lot of ways it doesn't talk about the earth's rotation but it says the rising of the sun right and we even do this in common language i mean go watch your news in the morning and it'll say sunrise at 6.52 a.m. Well, everybody knows the sun doesn't rise, but that's from our perspective what it looks like, right? The sun comes up. Mm -hmm. That's what the kind of language that's being used here. And so, but but also in each one of these texts, theologically and, uh, and, and biblically, we know that God always promises blessing to those who obey and justice or wrath to those who, who disobey. If God says, I'm going to bring down wrath on you if you don't obey, and then you, re- you repent of your sins and turn from your sins, then he promises to forgive those sins and treat you with, with mercy. So every one of these texts, ultimately, that's what we get. We either have, um, he promises that um, he will uh, bring wrath, and he does, because there is no repentance. Or he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to destroy you. And they do repent, and he relents, if you will, from that. Specifically, one of the texts you just read about you know, uh, Abraham trying to talk God down, well, 50 and then down to 10, or, you know, <clears throat> we don't for a moment believe that God didn't know how many righteous people were in the town. Right. right? He knew from the beginning that there were Eight. Right. We can't think for one moment that Abraham is giving God knowledge. Yes. He's not teaching God anything. Right. So God is not um, saying, oh, well, Abraham, that might be a good idea. I hadn't thought about that before. Actually, I think that really it's a, condes- a condensation. Uh, condensation. I say that a lot. <laughs> uh, a condescension to uh, Abraham uh, because Abraham's the one who learned in this. Right. That the city was less righteous than he thought. Right. It wasn't that God learned that that there were only ten. God knew from the beginning. In fact, if there was righteousness in any of the people, they were righteous because God had provided righteousness for them. They weren't righteousness in and of themselves. We learned that through uh, you know uh, uh, understanding Scripture. That being said, Abraham's the one who learns in this. The Lord is uh, you know is stooping down, if you will, so that Abraham can be aware. Of, of who God is. And God did exactly what he said he would do. He, he destroyed the city because there were no righteous. And what yes. righteous people were in the city, he lot he removed. Yes, he did. So he showed his mercy there as well. He showed consistency as well. Yes. Because he always redeems the righteous and he always judges the guilty. Right? right. Mm-hmm. And so he showed consistency there too. He did not judge the righteous, nor did he quit the, uh, you know, uh, the, the guilty. Right. They were punished. The righteous were saved. 
that's consistent. That's what he says, and he always acts within that. Within that, right? Because he can do no other. He can't be changing and be flexible and um, looking at and entertaining the thoughts and ideas of men, and then acting upon those things. Right. That would completely be opposite of what the Scripture teaches us about. God and his sovereignty. There actually is a popular um, theology that is running amok. Open uh, theism. Open theism now that makes God a learner. Um, at, you know, and so God doesn't have an exhaustive knowledge of, of all things in, in that the- theological framework, nor does he, um, you know, uh, is he sovereign over the affairs of men or anything else? So um, as men act, I mean, he's a good reactor. I mean, he's really good at reacting to men's um, autonomous, you know, actions. But uh, uh, anyway, it's not a biblical, it's, that has no biblical framework and, and it right. um, actually right. makes man God. And doesn't make God, much of God, does it? No, it <laughs> has a very small picture of God and very large one of man. But, um, but it is popular um, these right. days. So what people will argue if they're opening or arguing for God changing his mind and being um, responsive to men will be Genesis chapter 3, mm-hmm. the fall. And the argument will be, well, God wasn't expecting that, so he had to come up with a plan B, with mm-hmm. the plan of salvation, which this, the snake crusher is going to be introduced in Genesis chapter 3.15 which is Jesus, and that that now makes God reacting to man's sin, and so God had to make a plan B. Mm-hmm. Except for that um, Christ was slain from the foundations of the earth, right? Right. In that sense. So it had always been God's plan for Christ to be the atoning work, which means that it was always God's plan ultimately uh, I don't want to get in the weeds, but for man to ultimately fall. God is glorified ultimately in the fall mm. and the redemption of man. And so, um, yeah, Here's it, a nothing text. is taking God by surprise. Oh, I'm sorry. I talked oh. over you. Here's a text that helps us to understand before the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain. This is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And the text continues, but the plan of salvation was given before the fall, from before creation, Mm -hmm. Um, God had already ordained, planned, the death of his son for the salvation of sinners. First Peter chapter one, verses 18 through 20. Talk mm-hmm. about that. Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Speak to that as well. So all that to say that God doesn't react and come up with a plan B open theism that we were talking about seems to teach that and mm-hmm. indicate that's what would happen. I think, and I, I, I don't want, I, I don't want to be the people who, the person who uh, ascribes, motive, right? But it seems to be that some of those people are trying to make sense of these texts, right? But as opposed... I think some of them Mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is they do so much damage to 
the clear teaching of Scripture by trying to understand that which seems unclear, that um, that they do more harm than good. Uh, Because there are, like I said, didactic texts which make clear, concise statements about who God is, that then we should go back and look at these other statements and try to understand them in light of, of what is clear, um, ubiquitous, you know, uh, throughout Scripture. We should take those things and, and, uh, and let's, understand. Let's look at a couple of those texts in just a moment, but let me just mention Jonah again because I mentioned him earlier. And Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches, and the preaching was that God was going to judge the city and and overthrow the city unless there is repentance. And what happened? The Ninevites changed. Mm-hmm. God didn't change. Yeah. God said he would destroy the city, but they repented. The Ninevites changed. God was consistent with what he said he would do. And that's how we understand Jonah. But let's think now because you've mentioned these didactic texts. We've looked at these narrative texts. So to way, the way to properly understand and study your scripture or your Bible is to look at the whole and you would interpret scripture by scripture. So if you took just those narrative texts and that's all that we had, we could probably come to a conclusion that God does change. Right. But we are taking the whole of Scripture. For example, um, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 is one of these mm-hmm. verses that we could look at uh, that give us didactic affirmation that God doesn't change. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that, she, that he should change his mind. Right. Here's another one in Malachi. And you may have a couple, um, Philip. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, after um, Saul has sinned, he's been given a direct command by the Lord to kill Agag and all, and, and all of his people and all the animals and so forth. He, he disobeys. Um, and... God at one point, I think it's in verse 11, says um, that God has changed his mind and he is going to remove the, um, the kingship from, the kingdom is going to be removed from Saul and, and given to a man that's better than him, is what it says. Okay, A few verses later, so that we're not confused, it has always been God's plan to bless those who are obedient and judge those who are disobedient, and that's what he's doing here. Consistent with his nature, consistent with what he said. If, if he had obeyed, maybe he would have stayed king longer, right? But he didn't. He disobeyed. God's going to remove the kingdom. But a few verses later in verse 29, it says this. And also the strength of Israel, and here's a title for God, the, the, the strength of Israel, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent, or he is not a man that he should change his mind. There's a didactic statement. So if we were confused before, well, did he made him king, now he's not making him king. What's What he's trying to be clear of here is God didn't change. God has not changed at all. Why he uses that language in verse 11 is to be clear that what seems obvious to us is going to change. He was king. He's about not to be king. That is true. That is an act of God. But it's never been that God actually changed his mind in that sense. God is only changing the reality. 
And for us, the perspective is, well, God anointed him king, and now God is taking that away. God has changed his mind. That's what it looks like to us. God, like I said, condescends and, and gives us language that puts it in a perspective we can understand. The reality of, of, of who God is, theologically, what he says about himself in verse 29 is that he's not like a man in that sense. He doesn't change his mind. But God has... Um, uh, done exactly what he's always said, and that is reward the obedient and and bring justice to the disobedient. Mm -hmm. It was Saul who changed. It was. Saul's the one who disobeyed. It's Saul mm -hmm. disobeyed. Remember, he was affirmed by God as a choice of the people. Right. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul before this, and then he disobeyed. So it was Saul that changed, not God. Right. And one more text that, that, that we ought to consider uh, as we think about this is in James. It's in the New Testament. And um, James 1.17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The, the point here is that um, everything about creation changes, but the Creator doesn't. Everything about creation has shadows and variations and, um, you know, but they are, that's why they're the creation and not the creator. He is distinct from his creation because he's not like it in any way. He does not change. There's no variation in him. There is no shadow of turning. The Bible says there is none of that. He's distinct in every way. And every perfect gift that comes, comes from that man who's promised that the God who does not change it's a it's a it's a guarantee that 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 which is good is is going to come from God and God alone because he he cannot vary in 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 his decree so that's what's being put forth there God is is not like his creation so again that's how we interpret the narrative text that God is definitely unchanging we interpret those narrative stories by that reality and what the other texts throughout the scripture indicate to us. Uh, he, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 1. He says it in chapter 6. Uh, so let's think just for a moment. We try to wrap this up. If God changes, mm -hmm. that causes huge problems for us. It actually borders on blasphemy. I mean, well, I, as, I just, as I see it, yeah, yes, it would. Yes, it would yeah. But let's just say, okay, God, you change. You change your mind according to the pleading of men according to men's choices you react then that puts us in a very dangerous situation what 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 assurance do we have that god is not just going to change his mind about our salvation mm -hmm. what what sin am i going to commit that's going to put god over the edge and he's like you know i'm done i'm just going to change my mind about you mm -hmm. you you have no hope well, that's the whole thing. He, he's actually, in, in, in seven, verse 17 that we just read, he, he's basing his promises on good things in the fact that he doesn't change. Right. If he could change, there would be, as you just uh, implied, no guarantee uh, that, that we um, 
that there would be salvation uh, for for anybody or anything. Uh, there would be no redemption of the earth. There would be no redemption of, of anything. Redemption wouldn't even be a, a promised in his nature if he could change because there would be no promises to God's character and nature. Right. Right. In fact, all the promises that we understand about who and all the theological assertions we make uh, as we understand scripture about who God is, all of them would be um, up in the air. Yes. And, and the fact that God doesn't change brings great comfort and assurance to us. It would also mean he's unknowable. Yes. He would mean he's unknowable. The because we don't know what he's going to react to. Or what he's going to become in that sense, right? Right. So the fact that he is unchangeable means that he can be known. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's reassuring. And our Bible would be nothing. Because right. our, our Bible, it, it doesn't change. Right. Mm-hmm. And the statements there are, 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 are it would be, this should be without authority. It would be without sufficiency, and it would actually be useless to us because if God can change, then the revelation about himself would be useless. Right. So it's reassuring that he doesn't change, Amen. and it's, it's absolutely essential, really, to the fundamentals of our understanding who God is. And, and because, what, how would we know what sin is? Yes. I mean, what if, what if God changed and said that, um, you know, that he would allow other gods and that... Um, that fundamentally sleeping with your neighbor's wife is um, not only not wrong, but, you know, encouraged. How are we supposed to know what is acceptable and what is unacceptable? The fact that God doesn't change means that his revelation of himself doesn't change, and we can know what pleases him and what doesn't. Right. If he changes, then he is subject to the sinful choices of men. He's subject to the creation and what it does or doesn't do if there's catastrophe or some natural disaster. And God is reacting to all these things, and there's no assurance there. There's no sense of stability, and all these things are lost. And I actually think that that is the common, not thought through, but I think that's what most people think God does, that God is up constantly reacting to the actions of men, right, and that he's constantly responding. You know, um, if I'm just more diligent, if I just, you know, whatever in this or or this or the other, and, and that God is a reactor to human beings, and 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 unfortunately, that is um, not the, the God of Scripture, right? And no wonder we are constantly agitated and anxious and worried if we think that God is reacting to my decisions or the decisions of my neighbor or the decisions of the government or the tsunami that's blowing in. I mean, if we're thinking that God reacts, how can we ever have any sense of calmness and assurance? Yeah. Well, it would change a- your entire theology because then you're a moralistic, I can do this to please God and gain favor. Well, that's assuming it, he doesn't change his mind. Yeah. Assuming he doesn't decide that all the things that he has right True. now said that he's pleased by, later he's not <laughs> pleased by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the other assumption is that um, um, knowing that we can be assured and have peace because of who God is, we can also be assured that, that absolute justice is going to rain down on those who are unrepentant because God does not change. Right. Both sides of that are important. Those of us who are in Christ have peace because of who Christ is. Those of us outside of Christ can absolutely know because God does not change. He will exercise wrath and justice on those who do not turn in repentance to him. And this is the God that we worship. This is the God. Unchanging, timeless, infinite, not bound by 
any whims of men, unchanging, powerful. That's the God we worship. Here, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast. If what you've heard today has been helpful to you, please subscribe. On behalf of the elders of BBC, I invite you to a worship service at Believer's Baptist Church this coming Sunday. The Bible study hour begins at 915 and the worship service begins at 1030. Grace and peace. Peace.